Well, Lent by its very nature uh, calls for a certain kind of introspection, for a kind of self-assessment. And I think if we're going to do this well, we need a really good context and a proper rationale for the practices of Lent. Uh, Those of us who grew up here in Southern California uh, around swimming pools, whether you were a little girl or a little boy, you can probably remember the first time that you could swim from end to end underwater. I mean, you know, maybe you'd been trying for days or weeks, and, you know, finally you, you just knew you could do it or you'd done it once. And so what do you do? You run in, and you get mom or dad or whoever's home or both, and you say what? Come watch. Come look at what I'm doing here. Now, who does that? Not somebody who's afraid of their parents or not somebody who doesn't love their parents or not somebody who's sure that their parents loves and appreciates what they're doing. The child who does that knows that my striving, my little achievements, my little sense of kind of assessing myself and what I can do and, you know, kind of stretching myself, that my parent will appreciate that. And if we're to have a non-neurotic and spiritually edifying Lent, then we need to know what our readings tell us this morning, and that is that God has bound himself to you. I mean, there's a fancy biblical word for it, covenant. But essentially it means God looked at you, and he said, I bind myself to you. And I bind myself to everybody, and never again will I destroy the world in the way he did in the early parts of Genesis. So this kind of fancy theological word covenant, all it really is meant to do, I mean, there's lots of things we could say about what it means, but that would be beyond the scope of a a short sermon. So let's think about what's it supposed to do? What's the word covenant supposed to, what's it supposed to perform? What the word is really supposed to perform is to give us a worldview, a basic way to view reality. And when you think of covenant and the worldview it gives us, it answers the four basic questions that the early parts of Genesis is up to, and that is, who are we? That's the first one. And the basic answer is, you belong to God. Now, just think what that one little thought alone could do to your moral life. You are not your own, even Jesus went on to say, but bought with a price. Second question is, well, where are we? And the story in Genesis tells us that we live in God's creation. Again, just think about what that could do for your spiritual life if we just understood that one little thing that every day we live and move and have our being in God and his creation. The third question is, what's the problem? And Genesis tells us that the problem is rebellion and sin and evil. And then finally, what theologians call sort of the first little hint of the gospel in Genesis 3.15, we hear the solution to the problem, and that is that Eve's offspring would crush the servant. And we get a sense that the mission of God is to restore the reign of God in the world and restore fellowship with his servants who had gotten out of alignment with him. So essentially, the Bible, this kind of overall covenantal story, is the story of how God then fulfills this mission. So the reason I bring this up this morning is because I think the notion of God binding himself to us through these mutual understandings leading to a mutual agreement in where he's God and we're his apprentices, when we think that God graciously did the covenant on himself, by himself, 
And that he did this through loving kindness, through this really pregnant Hebrew word, his said, this covenant love that comes out of his grace and his initiation, and he's the one who will make sure that it's always fulfilled. Such that he then says, I will be their God, and they, us, will be my people. So this covenant love shows us that God gives himself to us, and that we in turn then give ourselves to him. And that is the basic kind of fundamental error, A-I-R, error of Lent. It's not about us performing. Whatever performing needs to be done has already been done. Now that doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. There are some people who you would think that... uh, us doing anything is somehow contrary to God's grace. Well, how'd you shower this morning? Do anything? Or was it all by grace? How'd you get here this morning? So the Christian doctrine of covenant and God's role in it doesn't mean there's nothing left for us to do. It just means that what we do isn't done for performing for his approval. It means we already know we have his approval, and he's going to be delighted to see that we can swim across the swimming pool. We have no doubt about that. And we have no doubt that when God sees our halting little fastings, our halting little privations, our little times of silence and solitude, it's not so much that we're at all, in fact, that we're doing that for his approval. It's that we know that he approves because we're trying to be in alignment with those four questions. Who are we? Where are we? What's the problem? What's the solution here? So God promises Noah, I'm establishing a covenant with you and never again will this happen. I'm putting my rainbow in the clouds to prove it. Now I know I'm not the only one in this room because I know my wife Debbie does. But I bet there's other people in this room for whom rainbows are actually meaningful. That they're not just, you know, the physics of atoms and molecules and how light hits it. But when I see a rainbow, I literally hear it or see it and I hear the voice of God in it. We sang this morning, another great part of what gives us a good rationale and context for Lent in Psalm 25 where the psalmist said, remember, Lord, your great mercy and your love, for they're from old. And it shows how, they're bond- how he's bonded to us. The psalmist talked about that we could go on this inward journey in trust. The psalmist said, in you, Lord, I've put my trust. For no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. We can trust the psalmist said that God would guide us in our Lenten practices. For he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. You know, the bigger question is not will you be guided? The bigger question is if you sat and thought about it for a moment, do you actually desire it? It's way harder in my estimation to desire God's guidance than to get it. For most human beings, actually desiring to be guided by something outside of themselves is the big trick. Kind of once you get there and you really realize, yeah, I'm in covenant with God and he's bound, his, he's bound himself to me and this is all good, well, then that normally will lead to a desire to, hey, God, show me how to be in alignment with what we're up to here together. But until some person gets there, and that's really, I think, right at the the deepest parts of what it means to be converted, then we're not apt to pray these sort of prayers that the psalmist prayed. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. 
For the psalmist knew that when God guides, something like this happened, that all the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful towards those who keep the covenant. And that is to say, who just do the little things that we do to hang into relationship with God. And this is why I uh, titled Lent, I don't remember, something like a joyous examination. That Lent isn't supposed to be about beating ourselves up. It's about just paying attention and paying attention knowing that we're doing it with this God who has already bound himself to us. So then our gospel reading this morning, if you want to look at it, really gives us the solid connection to God. Where as the story unfolds, we're told that the heavens were torn open, a voice comes from heaven, and they hear God say, this is my son, or more precisely, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Now, that is the basic context and rationale. What if you were doing Lent? What if you were doing self-examination, knowing that you're already in Jesus and that God is already pleased with you? That had you come up a stroke and a half short of that wall, your father wouldn't have been. Damn you. Damn you, stupid little kid. A stroke and a half short of the wall. No, you do it knowing that God has already said, with you I'm well pleased. Last week you couldn't even get halfway across the pool. And you get up gasping for air. Gosh, here we are a week later and you're only a stroke and a half from the wall. I bet if I come back next week, you're going to be all the way there. That is a completely different way not only of doing Lent, but can I say it's a completely different way of being a friend? It's a completely different way of being a spouse? and a sibling, it's a completely different way of being human. And it happens in the image of God, in this overall context that God says, I am pleased with you. So the heavens are open, this curtain is pulled back, and it exposes something that was always there. And I want you to just consider this for a moment, that though they were hearing and experiencing a different reality, It was a reality that was always with them. They just weren't always paying attention to it or noticing it. But when the curtain was pulled back, the air that carried God's voice. I want you to think of this. Picture yourself at the Jordan. And you're on the banks maybe. And you hear from heaven, whatever that means. You hear from the context of God. And his voice is now coming through the air. And that same air that his voice is coming through, you're breathing. The very same air that carried God's voice, they were breathing. This was a reality that was always around them, but they came to notice it. They came to pay attention to it, and it it came to be the thing that says, here is the context in which we do Christian spiritual formation. We do it in the context of, you're my wonderful daughter, my wonderful son, that God sees us in covenant, not as we are in ourselves, but in Jesus. Now, for some of us in this room, some of us had less than ideal parents, and some of us are divorced, painfully rejected. Others of us are single and painfully rejected. Others of us have been in partnerships in business and gotten hammered. Others of of us have bosses who slam doors in our faces. 
And so it can be hard to know on a really existential, a really deeply experienced way that you are God's dear, dear child and that he's delighted with you. Now, where's all that going? What's the goal of Lent? Where's all this heading? If that's the context and the rationale through which we do these ancient practices, What's the goal? And the goal is what we get out of the reading in 1 Peter this morning, a clear conscience before God through the resurrection of Jesus. See, it's always us in Jesus. So we get a clear conscience in Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But as we pursue that clear conscience before God, what I want you to hear this morning as we enter Lent is just never forget the context that right at the heart of Jesus' call for repentance that we read this morning, is the rainbow, is the voice from heaven. And the man calling for a clear conscience before God is Peter, for crying out loud, who perfected the art of getting part of the way across the pool after saying, I swear I will get to the end of the pool, right? And so it's this Peter who his last words, his last written words in the New Testament are these, grow in grace. Grow in grace and understanding of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. And do it in the context of the assurance of the psalmist. As we sang this morning, I trust in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Trust that God's guidance and goodness and his steadfast covenant love will be with us as we pursue these Lenten practices. So here's the big one thought I want you to take away this morning. It's this. We can't practice a holy Lent if we imagine God to be a cosmic bully, if we imagine him to be tormenting us with some sort of unachievable spirituality or a raging parent about to abandon us or to kick us out or that boss to slam the door in our face again. Now, when we think of Lent, I want you to think of it this way. When you think of um, pausing in whatever way you're doing it, whatever fastings or privations you're doing, I want you to, when, you, when, you, when a sin or something comes to your mind, I just want you to confess it. What does the word confess mean? It just means to come into agreement. God established a covenant. We're living outside of it. We see it. We confess it. And we say, God, I agree with you. And I want to be in agreement with you and in alignment with you. So this Lent, may your little fastings and may your brief moments of depriving yourself create, I hope, and I pray for you, just little openings from the audio and visual bombardments that we all live with every day. May you just get little openings in those days such that you learn to hear these words addressed to you. If you learned nothing else this Lent but this, you'll be golden. You are my dear, dear child and I am delighted with you. What if this Lent you just sort of sat with those words and you let them change you the way Jesus meant when he said repent? Repent just means to change. Well, what if those were the words that changed you? You are my dear, dear child. I'm delighted with you. What if you let them this Lent make you someone new? When Jesus said believe in me, he basically meant place your confidence in me. Be a different kind of person who would actually trust and follow me. 
So Lent can be a joyous journey when we remember the voice, that voice that came out of the same air they were breathing, the reality from which it came, and the good news that God wants to impart to all of us, that you are my dear, dear child. Maybe as we come this morning to our our little pause for consideration, maybe you just want to bow your heads with me and, and hear these words one more time. You are my dear, dear child, and I am delighted with you, says the Lord your God.